0: So my name is Chuck. I have a new life in Christ. I'm in recovery for fear, codependency, anger, pride, and this week, not trusting God's will as I should. Good to see you guys tonight. So we're going to continue in our series on the attributes of God. And as we do so, attributes are those kind of permanent and essential parts of God's character that show up on a basis where we can begin to understand at least some things about him. And tonight, we're going to talk about the attribute of God's glory. So you can say for sure that God is glorious. Your Bible declares that he is. But I don't think we, in words, can always describe what that looks like. There are times you find in Scripture where it is kind of struggling to really describe, in human terms, with human language, this infinite God and the glory of that he actually possesses. There are times in Scripture where it is really kind of stretched beyond its bounds a little bit. Isaiah does it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 40, 12, when he says, "'Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills?' In the balance. I want you to think about this. When you get home tonight, go to your sink, turn the water on, and cup your hands like this, and try to hold as much water as you can in your hands. And what you find is that water is going to flow out. But here's the thing. The God of the universe holds all the liquid in all of the universe in the hollow Of his hand. So when the Bible speaks of God's glory, what is he talking about? The doctrine of God's glory encompasses the greatness, the beauty, and the perfection of all that God is. That's what we mean when we talk about God's glory, but that's also hard for us to really understand. But there's this great story in the book of Exodus that at least gives us some handles and some ways to understand it in some tangible ways. If you remember the story of Exodus, God has raised up a man by the name of Moses who is going to come and lead his people out of 400 years of Egyptian slavery and he's going to take them into the promised land. And God does some amazing things. When they get to the Red Sea, God sits there and turns the Red Sea into a red carpet and lets his people walk through on dry ground. He makes sure that they have manna food that comes from heaven every day that they can gather. He also makes sure they have meat and water bubbling out of rocks. And then comes this moment where Moses, this leader, climbs Mount Sinai, and he is in the presence of God, and God is going to give him tablets written by his own hand that really describe the covenant relationship between this immense and glorious God and his people that he's bringing in to the promised land. And as that moment is going on, God tells Moses, you need to go back because this people, these ones that I have done all these things for, they have turned their back on me. And Moses goes down that mountain. And as he comes close, he hears the sound of dancing. And he sees that people dancing around an idol, a golden calf that had been made by the pl- through the plunder of all the gold that had come out of Egypt that they had taken, that God had told them to take. And it is Moses' own brother, Aaron, who has fashioned this calf and they are worshiping it forgetting the glory of this good good father and moses throws the tablets down and they break and he takes this metal image and he heats it up and then he pounds it into dust and he makes the children of israel drink the dust of the idol that they have been worshiping in that moment. And in that moment, God is ready to be done with them and start over with Moses. But twice Moses pleads for mercy, and twice mercy is extended. All Moses wants is God. Not to be a new nation, not to go into the promised land without God. Moses just wants God. And God, touched by Moses' heart, hears Moses' prayer, and he says in Exodus chapter 33, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But Moses has one more request. He says in verse 18, please, uh, actually begging God, please let me see your glory. Moses is desperate for God's glory. Let me say to all of us, when we pray a prayer like that, we cross a line, a threshold when we make such a request. When our deepest desires are not the things of God or something that we want God to do for us, when our heart's desire and the deepest part of us is actually seeking God Him self. Things are different. It's less self-focused and more God-focused. It's less about me and more about him. So the question comes, why did Moses want to see God's greatness? Why did Moses want to see God's glory? So ask yourself a similar question. Why do you and I stare at sunsets and ponder the summer night sky? Why do we search for a rainbow in the midst of the rain or gaze at the Grand Canyon? Why do you allow the Pacific surf to mesmerize and Niagara Falls to hypnotize? How do we explain our fascination with such sights? Is it about beauty? Yes. But doesn't the beauty... Point to a beautiful someone? Doesn't the immensity of the ocean suggest an immense creator? And so God answers very specifically Moses' request. He takes his servant and places him in the cleft of the rock. And he tells Moses in Exodus 33, verses 21 through 23, and the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Forgive my boldness, but shouldn't Moses' request be our request as well? Shouldn't we desire God in that way with those kind of things? Look, we're like Moses. We've got problems. We live in a dying body. We're walking on a decaying planet. We are surrounded by self-centered society. We are, we're walking with folks that are saved by grace, others that are fueled by narcissism, and some of us, we're in the same body doing all of that. Cancer, war, disease, sin, brokenness, it all shows up just like it did for Moses. And yet it was Moses who said, let me see the immensity of your glory. And God sits there and says, let me put you in the cleft of the rock because you cannot see my glory face to face. But there is this remarkable moment That is a fast forward into the New Testament where God, instead of the immensity of everything that he is, there becomes this personal nature in the person of Jesus. As John begins his gospel, he says in John 1 14, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From the immensity of a God that Moses, had to ta- that Moses had to be taken and placed in the cleft of the rock to an intimate relationship with the one we call Emmanuel, God with us, the one we see face to face, we have seen God's glory. We understand God's glory. I've asked and I've prayed the prayer that Moses has prayed. God, let me see your glory. And God has answered that prayer, but I want to illustrate it this way. There are some kids in Coutura, Paraguay who are making music with their trash they're turning washtubs into kettle drums and drain pipes into trumpets. Other orchestras may fine-tune their maple cellos or brass tubas, but not this band. They are playing Beethoven sonatas with plastic buckets. In Katura, garbage is the only crop to harvest. Garbage pickers sort and sell their refuse for pennies on the pound. Many of them have the same fate as the trash. They've been tossed out and they've been discarded. Yet this orchestra has taken the trash and made music out of life's worst moment. I want you to see their picture. In the middle of the trash heap. The glory of God. There have been times in my life that, because of life circumstances and the consequences of sin, where I have felt like I have been in that trash heap. And I didn't know if music could ever be made again. And in the worst moments of life, I have prayed Moses' prayer. God, let me see your glory. And in those hard moments, he reminded me that I am not alone. Every Monday night, I walk through these doors. I see a region staff team who's pouring their lives out for the sake of the gospel. I see leaders and coaches who night after night day after day, week after week, month after month, and some of them year after year. Invest in men and women who've raised their hand and said, I want the freedom that can only be found in Christ. But here is the beauty. I see you, regen participants, who basically have raised your hand in this moment and risked everything and have found this God-given, God-ordained courage to say, man, I don't need the healing that Regen brings. I need the healing that Jesus brings. And I know that he is faithful and true to the promises he makes. And so on this Monday evening, the Monday before Thanksgiving the thing I'm reminded of, the thing I am the most thankful for, is you. You who are the reminder, the definition of the unexplainable, unfathomable personification of the glory. Of God, See, I think we're discovering what the people of Keturah have discovered, that our mess is becoming music. And God will have a heaven full of rescued brokenness in his symphony. Not that he is going to make us better. Not that he's put us on some self-improvement plan. No, he takes hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. He makes us new. And as we play the music that's been the trash of our life in our weakness, his strength is magnified. I don't know what tune this orchestra may play, but here's what I believe. Everybody in this room will know Amazing Grace by heart.